Character Studies A. Ezra. Though his book was compiled and written by him, Ezra doesn't show up until chapter 7. We learn a lot about him within the first 10 verses. He was born in exile, in Babylon. Think about that. He had never been to Jerusalem. We don't know how old he was, but according to Numbers 4:30, a priest began his service at 30 years old. So, he was at least that old. Yet, his heart was in his homeland of Judah and Jerusalem. Application, though we have never been to heaven, that is where our home is too. We long to be there. Verses 1-3 also give his genealogy. Within the Jewish community, this was critical, particularly for the kingly line of Judah as studied previously, but also for the Levitical line. Ezra's lineage goes back to Aaron, the high priest, which means that Ezra would have been the high priest, or at least had that option. But he was not only priest and a potential high priest, but he was also a scribe. What was a scribe? Within the Jewish community, one who copied the manuscripts of the Old Testament, and particularly the Mosaic Law. This leads to the next phrase referring to him, that he was skilled in the Law of Moses. This title is stated four times in this chapter, 7-6, 11, 12, 21, and multiple times in Nehemiah, 8-1-3, 13 and more. Therefore, he was not just an average scribe, he was an expert in the Mosaic Law. This was needed, because after 70 years of captivity, God needed to send someone who knew what the Word of God said, and what He expected of His people. There is an additional note that affirms that the Lord, or YHWH, the covenant-keeping name of God, gave His law, which of course was through Moses as the statement says too. This affirms the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, also known as the law. Next, Ezra asked for some things, which are not stated in this verse, but we know why the king gave him all he asked for. Verses 11-26 state what King Artaxerxes gave to him and the Jews who went back to Judah. The hand of the Lord was upon him, as verse 6 states. This is a good thing. This is the favor, guidance, and blessing of God upon his servant, his life, and his ministry. Application, for us today, if we want God's blessing, we too should be an expert in his word. This doesn't mean we know it all, for we can't. But know the basics and some of the details too. More than that. We are doing what he says. This phrase is restated in verse 9. We know why he was an expert in the Mosaic Law and why God's hand of blessing was on him. We find that in verse 10, for Ezra had firmly resolved, literally, set his heart, to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is one of my favorite verses and tells us a lot more about him as a person, his commitment to the Lord, and his law. First, Ezra determined in his heart. This was his commitment, or his purpose in life. His vocation was not just as a scribe to copy the scriptures, but he took it seriously. This shows he had a very high view of the Bible of his time, which was still being written. He didn't view it just as another document, but as something worthy of honor and respect. I've heard of Muslims who have at least some of the New Testament memorized so they can try to discredit it and point people to Islam. May we respect God's Word. Second, we know his focus was the law because he didn't just copy it, but he studied it. He firmly resolved to study the law of Moses. Other translations of study are, seek or inquire. He didn't just copy the scripture, nor just memorize it, but he thought about what he read. He sought God's word in his personal life. Third, he prepared his heart, or firmly resolved to do what God said. Here again we see obedience. It's one thing to read, write and memorize the word of God. It is quite another to do it. Fourth, he didn't just copy it, respect it, study it, and do it. He taught it to others. He, as a Levite, was a teacher of the law of God. He wanted others to know what Scripture said, and naturally, to do it. 
we see that in his actions regarding the purity of marriage, which impacted the purity of the nation. He knew what God expected, and he wanted others to know what God expected of them, as his chosen covenant people. Applications, there are so many applications. For every Christian in general, these four truths are a challenge for our life. For we are all commanded to make disciples, Matthew 28 18-20, and these four principles give us some guidelines for how to do it. For Christian leaders in specific, this is a particular challenge, for we are held to a higher standard than others according to James 3 1, do not become teachers in large numbers, my brothers, since you know that we who are teachers will incur a stricter judgment. We, as leaders, should determine in our heart, or prepare our hearts to study God's Word, do what He says, and then teach it to others. We should strive to be changed by His Word and tell others what He states. This is a big task and one that we can only accomplish by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. The next section that tells us much about him is in 815-23. There he searches for Levites among those who were journeying back to Jerusalem. He finally found some and proclaimed a fast among the people. This was not connected to any feast but was for the purpose of humbling themselves and seeking God, 821. They asked for God's help and protection for them, their families, and possessions. Why? Ezra didn't want to ask the king for military protection. Their journey was long and carrying all that gold and money would have made them a target for thieves. And while the king would have given that protection, Ezra wanted to rest in God's protection, because there was more to it than just their protection. His name was at stake. God protected them. Application, within the Bible, there are prescriptive passages and descriptive passages. While we can learn from both, we need to understand both in context. Prescriptive passages told the people then what to do and tell us what to do today. I mentioned the Great Commission in Matthew 28. That is a command to the disciples, but it is a command to us today too. Then there are descriptive passages. These describe what occurred within a certain historical account in the Bible. We must be cautious not to confuse them. If we do, then we will fall into error. What Ezra did was not a pattern that every Jew, or by application, every Christian needs to follow. Yes, there are times when we pray for and depend upon God's protection without external help. But there are other times when God provides external protection for His purposes. For example, in Acts 23-28, Paul was under arrest, but part of that was for his protection from the religious leaders of that day. God used the Romans to protect Paul from his enemies. The passage in Ezra described what occurred for that situation at that time. It is not prescriptive, telling us what to do every time. Then in chapters 9-10, which I have already addressed regarding the purification of marriage, tell us more about him and his zeal for purity. This again, makes sense since he was a Levite, and purification was essential to the Levitical priesthood to conduct their services. When Ezra found out about the mixed pagan marriages, he grieved greatly, tore his garment and robe, which was a sign of mourning in that culture, and confessed the sin of the nation in 9-5-15. Application, are we this grieved over the sin of our world? Are we this grieved over the sin of our nation? Are we this grieved over the sin of the church? Are we this grieved over our sin? If we were, and I include myself, then the church and our culture would be very different. This confession is carried over into chapter 10. Others came to Ezra and offered the option, which we covered regarding the separation from paganism and those who practiced it. What does this show us about Ezra? He wasn't just a man of words, but a man of action. He did what needed to be done to make sure God was honored, and the people were purified and blessed by him. Application, so often, we, including myself, are full of talk, but not action. We can talk big all we want about love, truth, holiness, compassion, giving, proclaiming the gospel, helping those in need, and more. But if we don't put our actions where our mouth is, then we are insincere at best. Yes, things come up, 
and sometimes things are out of our control and we cannot fulfill what we want or what we promised. But, when we know what God expects and wants, and what we need to do in order to fulfill those things we claim, as individuals, as families, as churches, and as the church as a whole, then we too will show our sincerity for God's glory, through our actions. Be Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the son of Sheltiel, and though Jeshua, or Joshua, the priest was also a critical part, I want to focus on Zerubbabel, whom we meet in chapter 3. We are not told much about him at first, but he and Jeshua, and probably many others, feared the peoples of the lands, or the inhabitants. They wanted to get to the point and begin offering sacrifices prescribed in the Mosaic Law, so God would protect them from those they feared. He, and Jeshua, were essential in the reconstruction or restoration of the temple. In fact, this new temple is often called Zerubbabel's temple. He was the civil leader, or governor, of the people. But more than that, he was a descendant of the tribe of Judah, through King David. How do we know this? Matthew 1:12-13 states that he was in the lineage of Jesus. Zerubbabel would have been king, and though he did not sit on a throne, he was still the leader. Once again, we see God's faithfulness to the Davidic covenant. Application, you may not be a leader who is up front, but God still knows you, loves you, and empowers you to lead as He gives the opportunity. There may be one or two accomplishments in your life that have, can, or will impact others. Be thankful for that. Zerubbabel is known for the temple, and his leadership during this time of great need within the nation of Israel. But we also see that Zerubbabel was wise. In chapter 4, the enemies of God's people came to them and tried to deceive them into being part of the construction project. Zerubbabel and Jeshua said, take a hike to use modern terminology. This was not arrogance, but the NKJV Study Bible, on page 718, puts it as a righteous refusal. They knew what God wanted them to do and what the intentions of these impostors was, and they didn't want the pagan Samaritan religion to influence the purity of what they were trying to accomplish for the Lord and the people. They didn't say they needed to pray about it. They didn't say they would think about it. They didn't say after some other parts were done, then they could pitch in. No. They said they would do what God called them to do and they had nothing in common with God's people. Applications 1. We need to be careful of whom we partner with in life, business, financial endeavors, and in ministry. Satan sends people to hinder God's work. That is clear in Scripture. In our lives, there will be times when we meet someone who wants to be close to us, or in business, another company wants to partner with us, or in an investment situation, someone, or a group, wants to be part of that investment, or in ministry, a person or group wants to come alongside us and help us with ministry. While there are legitimate people we can say yes to, there are other times, when we too must say no. This doesn't mean we are cruel, evil, mean or hard-hearted, but we do need to tell the truth with righteous refusal. Example, consider Acts 16 16-18, where the possessed woman followed Paul and others around, telling the truth about what they were preaching. After some time, Paul got annoyed and cast the demon out of the woman. She told the truth, but she was not the kind of witness Paul wanted to be around, for she hindered the proclamation of the gospel. 2. This leads to a second application, and that is offending others. While we are not to purposefully go around offending people, truth confronts error and sin, and the person will get his or her or their feelings hurt. They will also be convicted of their sin. You know what? That is a good thing. There is this underlying idea that Christians must be nice to everyone and not offend anyone. This is connected to the false idea that we should not hurt someone's feelings or offend someone, but pamper them in their emotional immaturity. Where did that come from? Hell. We are not to be offensive with our attitudes or actions, but the message of truth will always be offensive to those who do not want to hear it. Don't let intimidation, fear, 
the desire to be liked or anything like that hinder you from proclaiming God's message, dealing with sin, or challenging someone who needs it. But remember, this is always to be done in love. Please hear me clearly. I'm not saying we are jerks. A jerk is a jerk no matter who you are. What I am saying is we need to be brave enough to tell the truth in love, and not be afraid of offending someone for the right reasons. Unfortunately, the work on the temple stopped for about 16 years because of their enemies. But with the intervention of Haggai and Zechariah, noted in Ezra 5, the construction began again. Application, sometimes we need encouragement to continue in life, in ministry, in work or everything. God can send a person or two, a situation, a song, or something to encourage us to keep going. Let this be that encouragement for you. The people were discouraged and God sent two prophets to confront them, and encourage them to keep doing what they were supposed to do. While there are no more prophets today like there were in biblical times, God's Word or a person who proclaims God's Word to you will confront and comfort you too. Perhaps God wants you to be that encourager to someone else. Now, we know from the prophetical books of Haggai and Zechariah, the people didn't completely stop working. They were busy building their own houses, so there was responsibility and failure on their part and the leader's part, including Zerubbabel and Jeshua. But to their credit, when confronted, they continued the work of rebuilding the temple of God. Application, how do we respond when we are confronted with our sin, laziness, excuses, etc. Do we admit it, confess it and move forward in faith, getting back on the right track? Or, do we continue to deceive ourselves, make excuses, or dismiss our sin as not as bad as underscore? The only right response to being confronted with our selfishness and sin, is to turn away from it and by God's grace, and with determination like Ezra and Zerubbabel, get back on the track God has for us. See Haggai. Rather than having you read a whole bunch of stuff about him, there is a 38-minute video I want you to watch. This will not only help you understand him as a prophet, but help you see the historical context in which he prophesied. As I have stated, it was between about 850 to 440 BC that the writing prophets had their ministries. We will interpret them incorrectly if we take them out of their historical context. This video is in the lesson as. Video 2, Haggai, Stop Lounging and Get Back to Work. Note. This video is part of a series on the minor prophets that David Ettinger, one of my co-workers at Zion's Hope did previously.